You're listening to the first Cultures of Soul podcast. I'm Dino Sounds, label owner and founder. Cultures of Soul is a Boston-based record label. We dig up rare funk, disco, soul, jazz, synth, boogie, African, Brazilian, and reggae records. All funky and all for the modern dance floor. We've been releasing music since 2010, and some of our compilations include synth boogie music from South Africa, 70s funk from Brazil, city pop music from Japan, gospel disco, and Boston reggae. In each podcast, we're going to be exploring the stories behind this music. We're going to try and take you back in time to when the music was created to give you some context of where this music came from. You'll hear stories from the musicians themselves and other DJs and tastemakers who discovered them. In this episode, we'll be talking about our LP subscription series and each of our four LPs, including a rare South African disco funk band broken up because of the apartheid, the longest running band in Guyana, a holy grail jazz funk album from Boston, and a sultry R&B soulful band that was recorded in Oklahoma City but produced in L.A. But let me tell you a little bit more about the LP subscription series. It includes four LPs fully licensed from the original artists with interesting liner notes written by Uchenna Icone and housed in custom jackets, hand-numbered and limited to only a thousand copies. Foxy Mama! Anthony Brown, um, writer and producer, uh, publisher for Septimus. I've been doing this for approximately 50 years. The story of this release really starts with a young, fledgling songwriter from L.A. named Anthony Brown. At 14, Anthony submitted some of his poems to his ninth grade teacher, who happened to be a friend of Dean Martin's, and who told him to, quote, keep at it. And so he kept at it. And by 1976, he had his first demo. He just needed to find a band to perform the material. The group, uh, Kevin Woolfolk and Derek Woolfolk, Greg Woolfolk, they're my first cousins. They had a band in Oklahoma as I was continuing writing here in uh, Los Angeles. And somehow we hooked up and I asked them uh, to look at some of my lyrics and if they could put music to it, you know, we can go from there. Because uh, back then I had the, the financing for it, and I did this all on my own. And that's how we got hooked up. But before then, I had a singer named Mandy Phillips that I was doing work with. And they took some songs from that I did for her and kind of incorporated into their style. So that's how um, Septimus came about. There are only two problems. First, they didn't have a record label. And second, the band was in Oklahoma, and he was in L.A. 
For the first problem, Brown decided to do it all himself. He started his own record label, publishing company, and did all the promotion himself. Because the band could not fly back and forth multiple times to L.A. to record, and Brown couldn't leave his job to sit in the studio in Oklahoma, the record had to be produced via a long-distance collaboration between the two parties. While such creative collaboration are far from uncommon in the second decade of the 21st century, with producers emailing tracks to vocalists and entire albums being assembled over Skype chats, in the late 1970s, it was a much more complicated arrangement. I would send them the funds to uh, do the studio recordings in Oklahoma, uh, give them ideas on how I wanted the lyrics to sound. And uh, they went to the studios, they did the recordings, sent me the masters, uh, whatever revisions I made, I made the revisions and sent it back to them. So we had a correspondence through the mail with masters going back and forth. And uh, when the product was finished, I had it mastered here in Los Angeles, well, in Hollywood. And that's how the finished product came about. But it was, um, you know, it was kind of rough sailing. But we had to do it that way because of expense purposes. The final product was an album featuring eight tracks of sumptuous jazzy R&B and funk showcasing the crisp musicianship Septimus had honed night after night playing for nightclub crowds in Oklahoma. It also felt slightly out of time, hearkening back to the deeply earthy and spiritual feeling of the early 70s soul, more so than fitting in with the gleefully cosmetic and glossy tone of early 1980s boogie funk. One example is um, the, the guitarist we had. I wanted uh, to hear a certain type of lick, and that was the West Montgomery lick, and that was in the piece of the pie. Eventually, the album would get distribution from L.A. International Records, the outfit run by producer Jerry Goldstein that had packaged hit records by Eric Burden and War. However, upon its release in 1982, 
The record just never got the right promotion muscle it needed to really launch it into the stratosphere. As I said earlier, I was I had all the hats. I was writer, producer, publisher. Uh, the mistake I made, I tried to be the um, promote uh, promoter, PR person, and all that, and I just couldn't handle it. Uh, that was out of my expertise. But I did what I could. I went to different radio stations um, here in the Los Angeles area. Um, I got them played on some stations. And in Oklahoma, Septimus were, they were still playing in clubs. And they were giving out albums or selling albums at the clubs. But uh, that's as far as it went because my sons dried up. And when that dried up, everything dried up. Brown hopes that the re-release of this album will educate young musicians about the musical and spiritual values that influenced them so many years ago, and hopefully inspire musicians to create music with a positive message. I hope it, uh, it takes hold. Uh, the music is good, the, the lyrics are good, you know, and there's a meaning into each and every song that is uh, sung on that album. The music nowadays, you know, we have, it's been digitized and, um, you know, the, the realness uh, has been usurped by all this digital uh, aspect to the music. Whereas we, we lose the feel of the real instrumentations, uh, people going into the studios, honing their skills, uh, correcting their own mistakes. Lyrically, uh, we have gotten away from what love is. <laughs> you know, you listen to songs nowadays, and there's no real songs out there today that express or talk about the intimate love between two human beings. And we have, we've got to get back to that. Because to me, uh, this generation has no idea uh, of that word love and what it means to, to um, have that emotional connection with another person. And I do hope we get back to that. This is music journalist and historian Uchenna Ikone. And this next excerpt is taken from the liner notes for the Thing album. If you want to hear pretty music, 
come to my second set of the night, says the veteran saxophonist Arnie Cheatham. If you want to hear what's on my mind, come to the first set, because the first set is when I'm just letting it all out. Cheatham is a man with a lot on his mind. He's a polymath artist who started out as a photographer, then picked up the sax to play in R&B and jazz bands in the 1960s, and then became an educator in the racially turbulent landscape of 1970s Boston. Today, at the age of 74, his mind is a whirlpool of memories, lessons, and theories about music, religion, design, sociology, politics, and semiotics. But he had just as much on his mind back in 1972 when he led his avant jazz ensemble through two sprawling live concerts of darkly funky, spiritually ascendant, improvisational jazz, preserved for posterity on the LP Thing. Thing is more of an improvised album rather than a traditional jazz album with song structures that are improvised. The album only has two tracks each one clocking in at over 21 minutes each. That was an excerpt from Things Road Through the Wall, the second LP in our subscription series. Arnold Cheatham arrived in Boston in the fall of 1969, coming from the Windy City after leaving his job as an accountant, wanting to pursue music for a living. Asked why he moved to Boston, Arnie said, 
There was a lot going on in Boston at the time. The Berklee School of Music, which is now known as the Berklee College of Music, was a lot more interesting then. Indeed, Berklee was ahead of most music conservatories in embracing current innovations in popular music, such as funk, rock and roll, and the fusion of these genres with jazz, and it had become a magnet for ambitious avant-garde musicians. I hung out there for one semester. That was all I had the money for, Cheatham says. But I made a lot of contacts during that period of time, so that was a good jumping-off point. At Berkeley, Cheatham studied with the legendary alto saxophonist Charlie Mariano and met fellow students like electric pianist Vaughn Lake, electric bassist David Saltman, trumpeter Will Littman, and the drummer Kia T. Nolan. These players would form the nucleus for the group that would later become known as Thing. The music is a searing, searching exploration of communion through the realms of electric jazz, psychedelic rock, and throbbing funk, all of it fully composed extemporaneously by Cheatham, Lake, Nolan, Saltman, and Letman, along with guitarist Bob O'Connell and Conguero Dorian McGee. We didn't have a score for all this, Cheatham says. We'd meditate for 15 minutes, then we'd hit the stage. Everything would just flow spontaneously from there. When we were done with the Thing album, I took the tapes to Columbia and the local A&R guy there, Cheatham says. He slams those reels onto a tape player, puts on some phones, and he's listening. He's listening and nodding. And I'm thinking, this is a great sign. Then he takes the phones off and he says, it's good. I can't do a thing with it. The A&R executive said that all the money was tied up into promoting blues rocker Edgar Winter's White Trash album, which had been released the previous year. But there was another concern as well. He says, You're sounding really close to Miles here. How are we going to work that out? There's no denying that Cheatham had taken some inspiration from Miles Davis, as had virtually every other progressive or commercial jazz musician at the dawn of the 1970s. Davis was in the midst of his revolutionary cycle of albums starting in the mid-60s when he launched his exploration for a nexus between jazz and rock, helping to birth the subgenre that would be dubbed jazz fusion. However, Cheatham maintains that he was not merely aping Davis, but following his own primal instincts as a musician. After the group decided to release it themselves in 1972 on their own interview records imprint, Cheatham continued performing jazz in the Boston area but needed a steady day job to pay the bills. He decided to create programs for children to introduce them to jazz. Jazz Ed, a program that staged musical presentations for students ranging from preschool to junior high. Traveling across the state opened Arnie's eyes to the wide discrepancy in resources between different communities. Cheatham says, We went to the Martin Luther King School in the primarily African-American neighborhood of Roxbury. The windows were bolted shut in the summertime, and the heat was horrible. We tried to find a working electrical outlet to plug in an amplifier. There was only one socket that was working. The kids came in and did the best that they could in the sweltering heat, and we got through the program. Same day, that afternoon we go to a school in Acton, Mass., an upper-middle-class, predominantly white suburb. They had a brand new auditorium. 
microphones already set up for us, mixing desk with the cat taping. Every conceivable amenity that one could wish for was there, and that really was the heart of the discrepancy. This is what we're fighting over. How can you have this over here and that over there and claim it's an equal opportunity for these children? When we get out of here, which ones are going to be better prepared to function in the world we live in today? The album ended up in obscurity over the years until vinyl collectors from all over the world began digging up rare jazz records. Arnie continues to perform to this day. of the African people 
and the consciousness to make our people more economically viable. So we use every tool that is available to deal with the upward mobility of the economic situation. So we thought music would have been our, would have been our ticket to this kind of development. We have enjoyed some success. In 1973, we went to Suriname. Um, in 1974, we go to Barbados and Trinidad to record our first um, album, which was Black Pepper, which was released in 1975. So, and then we, we moved on. In 1976, we appeared at Festa, which was a um, um, Caribbean Festival of Creative Arts, which was participated by the entire Caribbean community and is still going on to now. And that was founded by Lyndon Forbes Samson Burnham, who was the Prime Minister of Guyana at the time. Sorry. 
Hi, this is Space Guest Temba T-Rex Mzwagadli from South Africa, Mpumalanga Witbank. The final LP in the series takes off where we left with our discovery of South African synth disco music from our 2016 Boogie Breakdown compilation. The year is 1982, the coal mining city of Witbank, South Africa. More specifically, it's a packed dance hall full of Zulu local dancers come out for a night of clubbing, drinking, carousing and enjoying music from the night's band, a disco group called Space Cats. In the U.S., disco might have symbolically died three summers earlier when piles of disco records were set aflame by rock and roll loving rowdies in Chicago's Kaminsky Park. But this is South Africa. Here, disco never sucked and is still the social music of choice. With the help of manager Brian Van Tonder, the Space Cats recently released their debut album, Something New. A collection of perky, stripped-down Afro-disco and are busily preparing for a follow-up LP. Things are looking good for the band until this happened. We were having this gig at the local dance hall. Out of nowhere, we had gunshots. Everybody scattered in different directions. That was very bad and very scary. We were lucky to even get away. Brian said, guys, we cannot continue like this. We cannot risk our lives like this, especially me. And he was right. He was right about that. Van Tonder's special emphasis upon his own security is informed by more than just a sense of self-regard. It's a reflection of the society in which they live. Van Tonder is white. The members of the Space Cats are black. In the early 1980s, South Africa is still governed by the laws of apartheid the system of segregation that separates black and white South Africans by race. Mingling between the races is strongly prohibited, especially in social spaces like parties and nightclubs. Space cats could never dream of playing before a white audience, and a white man attending black parties, as Van Tonner routinely does when he accompanies the cats on gigs, is essentially 
illegal. The cruel rule of apartheid and its forced separation of races impacted all spheres of life in South Africa. Economic, educational, social, spiritual, political, even musically, black and white South Africans largely lived in worlds apart. While whites preferred pop, rock, and folk music, blacks preferred soul, jazz, and funk music. As a black kid growing up in Whitbank in the 1960s, Themba desired to listen and play rock music. I was listening to rock all the time from bands like Deep Purple, Grand Funk, Uri Heap, all these guys. Listening to rock, the sound of the guitars was fascinating to me. I got hooked. I loved all those bands. In fact, I got my nickname, T-Rex, from Mark Bolan. In those days, you couldn't mix with rock musicians, although I wanted to. But it was not allowed because they were white and I was black. I tried. But if I approached them, they would say, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. Instead, Themba joined a black group called The Legends and then eventually formed a new band called Space Cats. They all admired the South African Afro-rock group Harari, who started off as the Beaters in the late 1960s, playing jazz-inflected rock. By the mid-70s, they had switched to a funkier Afro-disco sound. The music of Harari would serve as an important influence on the Space Cats style. I formed Space Cats with Senti Tlatla, who was from Swaziland. I played bass. Senti played lead guitar. The lead vocals and the songwriter's duty were split between me and him. The lineup was rounded off by Dusty, uh, Rocks Marokane, keyboards, Charles Gray, percussion, Samuel Taff, Masilela on drums. There was no recording labels, no studios in Whitbank. Everything had to be done in Jobek, which is quite far away. We didn't know anything about the business. Like I said before, we were just young people doing it for fun. But Brian knew some people in the music industry who were able to help us. After the recording, the first album, Brian wanted us to go back to the studios immediately to cut the second album. We already had the songs we wanted to record, you know. We had only been around for between three to six months when we made the first album. And we felt we could do it, we could do an even better job on the second time around. But then, that was when we had that scary incident in the dance hall and Brian quit. So there was no way for us to continue. After the group broke up, the members went their separate ways and never performed again as a group. But 1994, apartheid finally ended And in 2009, Themba finally had the chance to perform rock music in an interracial group called Juke.